Before we can uh, continue in our worship through preaching God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Precious Father, again, we thank you for the privilege to come before you. We thank you for the privilege to worship you together, to hear from your word. We pray that you would take your word and minister to us sweetly. Um, we come to bow our hearts before you this morning to confess uh, our sin, our struggle with sin, the reality of it, our awareness of it, our hatred of sin corporately and personally in our hearts. Lord, we long uh, to know less and less of it and to walk in righteousness, empowered and strengthened by you, uh, filled with the Spirit, um, uh, walking in light that uh, we might know you more fully. We know that our sin is an affront to you. Although it is paid in full, it is still an affront, a barrier to our intimacy with you, and we lay it down and we uh, confess it and ask for your strength and your grace to move forward and walk in righteousness. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we come to, again, to the book of Acts, chapter 23, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 35, that being the end of chapter 23, verses 12 through 25. The title of this morning's message is Hard Times and the Providence of God. So if you'll join me there in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 23, and let's look through those uh, verses together. Acts 23, verses 12 through 35. So this deals with the conspiracy to murder Paul, to assassinate Paul, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves together under an oath. Now it says the Jews there, that's talking about a specific group of Jews, and these are all zealots, okay? So these zealots bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander and bring him down uh, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thoughtful investigation to determine, um, excuse me, a thought more, a more thoughtful investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard their ambush, heard their ambush, and came and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and uh, step aside, stepping, stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are laying wait for him uh, who has bound, they have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. 
So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night and proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. There were also to provide mounts and put Paul on and bring, to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having this form. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And waiting to ascertain uh, the charge by which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused of questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there were to be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance with their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day, leaving the horsemen to go on with him, they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. When he had read it, he asked from what province he was. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, when we find Paul here in this circumstance, um, he's fallen on pretty hard times. What, what is unique to Paul now, now what Paul's circumstance that we haven't seen before prior to this moment. Paul is now, his, his dynamic has shifted quite a bit. There's something very different that we're going to see about Paul's life and Paul's ministry from here on out. You know, right off the top of your head, what's very different about Paul at this point? So from here, from here on out. He's a prisoner. He's a prisoner from, from now to the end of his ministry. Paul will minister as a prisoner, he will no longer come and go as he pleases. He'll be led by men and told where he, where he can go and what he can do and when he can speak and when he cannot speak. So his circumstances, his circumstances have changed dramatically. He's still a hunted man, though, is he not? Right here we find a plot against him uh, by zealous Jews and what these men have done, they have taken a vow. So they've basically said, and the vow is an extreme vow. They said, may we be accursed if we do not kill Paul, if we do not kill this man. May we be accursed by God. In other words, we will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. And if we do not kill him, may we wither away and die and be cursed under God. So that's the vow. This is a pretty serious vow. Now, uh, before you get too carried away with it, there's always there's an out clause to this, by the way. So the Jewish leadership, the Jewish council can give them an out clause in this. And I can't say definitively, but they probably did. And they were in cahoots with them, were they not? So they go before the Sanhedrin and, and kind of um, ask for their permission to, to uh, kind of include them in a plot. So that's that's interesting as well. But for Paul's part, uh, he's going to be a hunted man. He's going to be hunted as a prisoner. He is in prison now, and his life has changed drastically. He has fallen on hard times. Think about it. He's been through three riots. 
And just this, you know, just the, the end of last chapter and this chapter, we're, we're looking at three riots. He's escaped death three times. And now he sits alone in a barracks. And um, I was reading a commentary from, from James Boyce, and he mentioned Job 5.7 as he was talking about the circumstance of Paul. I thought it was quite appropriate. Job 5.7 says this, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And man, Paul could relate to that, uh, to that text uh, uh, and, to, and to Job at this point. So he's, he's, um, it's not the high point of his life. By any means, it's a very difficult time. And we know in that difficult time, what has just happened to Paul that has been a most marvelous, gracious act of God. What has just happened to him prior to us hearing about this plot? The Lord has come to meet with him, right? Personally, in a very intimate, personal way, the Lord has come to him. When Paul's probably thinking, now he's sitting along in the barracks, he's probably thinking, you know, I'm at the end of my line. This is it. Surely this is it. And if this, uh, um, if these men would have their way, that's going to be it. They're plotting to kill him actively right now in context. But the Lord comes to him and says what to Paul? Cheer up, right? Cheer up, Paul. Look, you've been faithful to carry my gospel here in Jerusalem. And because of that, you're going to carry my gospel all the way to Rome, right? And I'll give you a little hint up front. Um, the Lord prior, man, two years now, two years prior to meeting him here and meeting with Paul again and encouraging him, the Lord prior said, you're going to carry my gospel to the Gentiles and you're going to speak my gospel before kings, right? And what you're going to see transpire in this text is the first step of keeping that promise. And so now the Lord meets with him and encourages him and says, Paul, you know, it's not your time. I'm going to see you through. You've been faithful. I'm going to give you more ministry. And so as we look at this text, we, we see the, the plot unfold to us, and it gives us context here uh, for Paul's journey closer to Rome. But we don't really have any major theological, theological doctrines that are just standing out in this text. It's just it's, it's a bit of a narrative, and it's kind of setting the background for Paul to begin to move forward. But there's far more going on here because behind the scenes, God is at work in his providential care, bringing Paul along just as he intends. Now, in context, Paul looks to be in a bad way. He can't move freely. He can't go and preach where he wants to preach. He can't, uh, he can't um, go out and, and carry the gospel and plant churches the way he's used to doing. He doesn't have that freedom. He's now confined to the, the consequences of his imprisonment. And he no longer comes and goes as he pleases. But who is in control of his circumstances? God is in control of his circumstances. God is in, is in control of the context through which he will minister. And the same is true for us. So that we don't look at major theological themes here. I want you to keep in mind the, the, the kindness of God and his providential care in all our circumstances that he brings into our life for our spiritual good and for his glory as we reflect upon that reality that we can see here in Paul during this circumstance here as a plot is formed against him. And we'll see how God carries him through that. Um, 
as we think about the application here for us, well, we're in some unique circumstances right now, just as citizens of this country. It's a very polarizing time. We have very divided political entities <coughs> in our current climate. We have a very serious uh, economic situation that um, many of us in this room are too young. This is probably the worst one you've been through. Some of us a little older have been through something similar in our lifetimes, but um, you probably haven't seen uh, quite the economic uh, turmoil that you're seeing now. So it's unique, it's different, it's, it's a tough situation. Uh, it's a social um, divide in our, in our culture. There is much upheaval. We have uh, news outlets that are very politicized and polarized, and it's hard to get real definitive factual news which means freedom of the press is being repressed. That's unhealthy. That's stressful. That's a tough climate. And that's not to mention uh, all of the very uh, the more personal things that may be going on in your lives or your family's lives right now. Economic troubles means a loss of jobs. Many of us have friends or family that have already lost jobs. Some jobs are on the line. There's political pressure. Uh, uh, dealing with some jobs that could interfere whether one is, uh, continues to, to, to work at a certain place or, or they're let go. So we're facing difficult circumstances. We're facing difficult environment around us now. But no, all our circumstances, just like Paul here, are in the hands of God. And God directs us in our circumstances and leads us and carries us through just as he does Paul here. And what is our role? Our role is like Paul to hear from God, to trust and obey. Now, Christ meets with Paul very personally, right? And assures him. So for us, that's not the case where Paul, where the, excuse me, where the Lord meets with us now is through the word, right? So the Lord meets with us in the scripture. So we are to go to the scripture uh, day after day, feed ourselves, feast upon the scripture, uh, uh, gorge ourselves with the truth of God, trust him there, uh, Pray for strength to obey and to trust and to live by faith on the promises of God in Scripture as they apply to our lives. So let's look here, kind of in the beginning at verse uh, um, verse 12. And we know uh, this is immediately following Christ speaking these encouraging words to Paul and telling him to, uh, to take courage, to cheer up, to be assured that he's going to carry the gospel to Rome. And right after that, we're going to hear behind the scenes here uh, what is being planned for Paul by these zealous Jews. So beginning in verse 12 and looking and going through verse 14, I want you to see the plot, the plot here. So God really seals his promise, his picture of providential care in verse 11 for Paul. That's really there. That's a, that's a reminder for us. There's God's seal. The same seal rests upon our lives. God is going to see us through according to his will and for our good. And here Paul is rewarded for his faithfulness. So he's moving forward. And God's working out his will in Paul's life through his circumstances. So what you're going to see in this text is the hand of God at work but the hand of God at work through circumstances. So we're not going to see him break in and meet with Paul uniquely like we saw in verse 11. 
but we are going to see God working out Paul's life, his will for Paul's life through circumstances. The same is true for us. The good circumstances, the bad circumstances, the ugly circumstances, all circumstances, all things that comes Paul, that comes Paul's way here and that comes our way as we follow Christ in our lives, in our context, all of it. God is accomplishing his will through all the circumstances, the news of natural events, if you will, all circumstances weave together to accomplish God's will. It's true in Paul's life. It's true in our lives. Philippians 4, 6. Therefore, Philippians 4, 6 rings true to us. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So lay your heart before God. Tell God what you're thinking, what you want. So this is not a, a prosperity uh, uh, Trump here, but just tell God what you want. Lay your heart before him and God will direct you. If you need to be shaped and moved and formed in another direction, God will see you through that and he'll meet you in your emotional needs. So lay your heart before him. We've talked about that before, but um, be faithful there. Trust the Lord and lay yourself before him. Tell him your desires and he'll take and shape you in the way that's best. Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Amen, somebody. Luke 12, 32, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. You are a possessor. If you're here as a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, you actively right now and forevermore throughout eternity are the possessor of the kingdom of God. God has granted you. He's chosen you out to no merit upon yourself by full on grace. He's chosen you out and granted you his kingdom. You possess it now. You actively live in this world as a follower of Christ who possesses the kingdom of God. So we think about verse 12 here, running through verse 14. We see this plot unfold. I think about Philippians 3.10. And here's, again, Paul and kind of this prayer here and listen to that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being comforted, uh, excuse, excuse me, being conformed to his death. And particularly there, the fellowship of his suffering. So Paul knew that. He knew that way. He knew that maybe more than most. But it's the heart that's here laid before God and willing. So Paul is not a good way, not in a good circumstance, uh, but fully trusting God. And here a plot comes against him. So it says they form a conspiracy there in verse 12, and they bound themselves by this oath, and they're going to kill Paul. There's 40 of them. Again, these are zealots. So they're really, we might think of them, if we think of a modern-day terrorist, the zealots often worked in that way in the sense that they were happy to use violence if necessary. They were happy to kind of hide themselves under governmental uh, entities and work with them when it was helpful for their cause but they would do things in secret and they would make hits on people they would assassinate people they were known assassins and they were happy to do this if it would drive their political agenda 
And so really what you're looking at here is what we might think of as we think of uh, a terrorist. That's what they are. That's basically what they were. They were terrorists. And so they're making this plot to kill Paul, these 40 men. They bind themselves on the oath and they go to the Sanhedrin. And they're going to get the Sanhedrin in on this uh, conspiracy to kill Paul. So it says there, um, in continuing in verse 15, now therefore, uh, speaking about the Sanhedrin, um, they've got the chief priests and the elders together, and they've told them what they're going to do. And then they say, now therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him, that being Paul, to you, as though you were going to determine the case by a more, a more thorough investigation. So what we're going to do, we're going to have the high priest and the elders, we have some of the Sanhedrin, go to the commander and say, look, you need to release Paul to us so we can sit down and go over this case again and kind of clarify what we're charged, what this man needs to be charged with. So that's a way to get them out of the fort, Right. And so on their way to the council, they're going to lay an ambush for this for, for Paul, and they're going to kill him as they're bringing him from the fort, Antonia, to the Sanhedrin. So that's the plan. <clears throat> so they continue, and they say, when you do this, when you say you're going to investigate, and you need to investigate the case a little more, we'll be ready, and we'll slay him. When he gets near to the place where we're going to meet, and now they're going to call them to the to the, the council where the Sanhedrin would be normally. He's going to call them uh, into the council where the Sanhedrin are together, and before the, they bring Paul close, they're going to land wait and they're going to kill him. Now, they've sworn by this vow, which we're not to swear, right? Anyway, are we? We just let our yes be yes and our no be no. We don't know. Why do we not swear? By the way, let me just hold that for a second because we're not supposed to do this. But they're going to swallow this barrier, and they're going to outfalls in this thing. Um, but why are we not to do that? This is a, this is a big no-no here, by the way. Why are we not to do that? If you swear on something, and even circumstances out of your control, they are finishing what you swore to do. Then you actually lied. Yes, we don't know. We don't know what the future holds. That's the, the circumstances belong to God, right? I mean, I, I, we're, to, we're to, to, to focus on our duty, on our obedience, on, on our trust of God, and, and leave the consequences, leave the circumstances to God. So we're not to swear. We're just let our yes be yes and our no be no. And we're trusting the Lord. So the Lord is in control. The Lord's providential care is control of our lives and the circumstances. Therefore, we don't dabble in that and, make, and, and swear and take these vows. But the Sanhedrin's working together with them, and so they, they don't mind that. You know, after all, if it gets real bad, they'll bail them out. So now the spiritual leaders of Israel are involved in a murder plot, are they not? Well, that's healthy. That's good leadership there. So they tell the Romans what they want to do, and they lay up this uh, little uh, supposed uh, deeper investigation to draw Paul out for the ambush. And that leads us to the discovery in verses 16 through 22. So look there beginning in verse 16. We're going to see the discovery of this plot. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead, uh, lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. And boy, does he have something to report. 
So he took him and led him uh, to the commander and, he, and, uh, and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to leave this young man to you since he had something to tell you. So the commander took him by the hand and stepped aside and he began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them. For more than 40 of them are lying in wait for him, and they will uh, uh, and they have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, tell no one that you have notified me of these things. Now, Paul's nephew, and here the, the text would indicate it's a pretty young boy, okay. And so Paul, nowhere in Scripture does he tell us about his family. So we don't know about his family. If any of them had, had come to Christ, you would think somewhere maybe Paul would mention it just out of joy. Uh, but we don't know. We don't have it. We're, we're not sure. Uh, we don't know if this young man, Paul's nephew, has now been sent to Jerusalem to study as Paul had studied. He's got access to the Sanhedrin. So that's a pretty privileged position. He's, he's either their family's wealthy or he has a pretty good inroad with some, uh, some of his academia somewhere to get into the council or something. It's, it's a mystery. We don't know why he's here. But why, but why can we, you know, we don't know the details of why he's here. But why can we step back and know for sure why is Paul's nephew privy to the Sanhedrin? Because God in his providential care over Paul's situation is going to have these men found out. What in the world? This little guy should not be there. He's there. And he overhears this monumental plot. And again, these guys did this for a living. You're looking at terrorists here. They're not sloppy guys. These guys did this for a living. Uh, and they flourished in this part of the world for a long time. So that they're pretty clever about how they work and they're pretty secretive about how they go, go about matters. And this was a big murder plot. And here, Paul's nephew is right there in earshot. I mean, what, you know, this is not the modern age where something could slip out on a text. He's there. So you just see the hand of God and all this. So now Paul's nephew hears about this, and he goes to tell Paul. Paul sends him to the, the commander. And, and look at the gentleness of the commander here. Just uh, this, And by the way, it's volatile. you got to know it's volatile in Jerusalem right now. And the commander does not want anything to spill over in greater violence. He's already had some major issues with Paul. I mean, Paul, is, you know, he's a riot maker. He's a riot waiting to happen. So this guy doesn't want trouble. And so anything that comes from Paul, he takes this little fellow by the, you know, aside here, takes him by the hand, calls him away and inquires privately of this young man. So what's the report? He tells him, he gives him uh, the plot. And then um, the commander listens to him. And then he says this, okay. He lets the little guy go and instructs him, whatever you do, don't tell anyone or notify anyone about what you said to me. No kidding. 
No again. So he sends it back. He says, you, you keep this on the lowdown. Keep your mouth shut. Right? But now the plot has been discovered. And by the way, in verse 21, the young man's pretty definitive there. He says, look, this is what's going on. They're going to tell you to bring, and he's talking to the commander. This is a commander of a thousand men. This is no small guy in the Roman forces. This is no a lightweight. And so this little guy comes up to him and says, look, this is the plot. And they're going to, they're going to have you to come, you know, to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin so they can inquire a little more about this case. And he says to him, don't do it. And it's a command. It comes in the text as a command. Don't you do it. Whatever you do, don't do that. So he kind of, the boy kind of tells the commander what to do here. Don't do it. Why? Because there's an ambush waiting. Forty men have taken a vow to kill Paul. And so the boy is told to keep quiet. And again, we see the providence of God using a little boy, Paul's nephew of all people, to direct the commander of a thousand men. Now look, here's a real easy application for us when we see something like this in text. In a text, this little fellow just happens to be at the right place at the right time and goes to the commander of a thousand troops and says, "Look, there's a plot from the Jewish uh, 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 contingency and the Jewish leadership's involved, and they're going to have you bring this kid down. Whatever you do, do not do it." You sent away. And so just know this here in this text in our life as well. And sometimes we feel a little obscure. I mean, we're, we're not sitting in, in uh, big, powerful seats of, or, or a great place of influence. And that's never the point with God's people. Let me tell you this. God delights in using small and simple things. This is a small little fellow. And this is a simple little situation where someone overhears the plot. It was not complex. The little guy was right there and he heard him. It's small and it's extremely simple. And God will use this to spare his man. He delights in using small and simple things. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world <clears throat> and the despised, excuse me, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things which are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Small little things delights God. Know that he always uses the small things. So when you're here and you're thinking it's a little obscure, there's very little influence, there's a small voice, that means nothing to God. Be faithful. Trust God's providential care in your life. And that brings us to the letter. So Claudius Lachius is going to write a little letter to Felix, the governor, right? Um, so let's look there at the letter. That's interesting. And by the way, it's preserved here intact in Scripture. There's no way that Luke uh, in any way likely got his hands on this. So you're just looking at, uh, again, the Holy Spirit bearing men along supernaturally as they write the Scripture. So this is penned by Luke, you know, um, precise, word for word, word for word letter from uh, Claudius Lysus, so it's a unique little thing in scripture here. But let's listen to how he, how he words it. 
And you can and you can see the authenticity of it because it's a little padded, isn't it? Just a little shaded. I mean, and, uh, Lysias is not afraid to make himself look a, uh, pretty good in this letter, right? So it begins in verse 26. So the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, what's wrong with that? That's true, but what's wrong with the uh, with the wording there? When did he find out that he was a Roman? When the Jews were about to kill him? No, when he was about to flog him, right? Yeah. Left that little detail out, huh? Well, you got to try to impress the governor. Fallen man. There you go. So a little padded. Nonetheless, um, so he says in verse 28, and waiting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed... that there would be a plot against this man. I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. Now, true, when he found out these matters, he does contact Felix, right? So, I mean, he did did what he's, he's telling the truth there. He found out this guy was, you know, that Paul was not deserving. That's certainly under the Roman, under Roman law. Now that's what they're still trying to find out. You know what are these guys charging for? This is a, this is a quibble over their you know religious beliefs. We say under Roman law, this guy does not deserve to be charged with, with you know a, a, a crime that's deserving of death. That was his stance, and he was consistent about that. But notice what he does here. He rushes this thing to the governor's desk, right? And it's just I'm sending them down to you. I'll grab the council and you deal with it. I mean, he is is cleaning his hands as quick as he can. He does not want, this guy's right there in the heart of a volatile situation. He's sitting right on top of Jerusalem. He does not want this in his hands. So you're seeing this guy, let's see, he's moving this thing down the chain or up the chain, really. So this goes to the governor's office quick. He's going to get Paul out of town as soon as he can. But he lets him know and he's, uh, you know, <laughs> he's passing Paul off. Give the responsibility to the governor. And so the soldiers, he gathers the soldiers, and they're going to do accordingly. Verse 31. Now we're going to see this delivery of Paul. So the soldiers, in accordance with their um, orders, took Paul and brought him uh, by night to Antip- Antipatris. But the next day, leaving horsemen to go with him, they returned to the barracks. So there, now you see again what's happening. So they're taking them down about halfway. So it's about 60 miles uh, to Caesarea, to the governor's mansion. And they've gone about halfway to this little place called Antipatris. Um, And half of the contingency is going to come back. So now from that point, they've got him out of Jerusalem. So there's a large number uh, to carry him out. But now once he gets about halfway into uh, into Gentile territory, they're going to leave Paul with just a lesser number of troops, and they'll continue on to the governor's office, and they'll bring a larger number of troops back. And so verse 33, 
When these had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when he had read it, he asked from what providence he was. And when he learned that he was uh, that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept at Herod's praetorium. So he finds out first, you know, what province is Paul from? Because they had different jurisdictions. So Felix didn't even know if he should see if he should be the one that sees this case. So that's why he's asking. Once he finds out he's from, he's from Cilicia, he says, "Okay, that's a province that belongs to me. Bring him in. I'll hear the case." So that's what's transpiring here. So they discover the plot. The letter, uh, well, this kind of gives a little doctored up letter there, but he, he gives a letter and then they're going to travel about halfway, half the half of the uh, of the Roman guard is then going to come back. And again, that's just for the protection of Jerusalem. And they do this at night. So he's taken by night and it's massive protection. So what they have here is a large, massive protection for Paul. Look there, it says when I, I, in verse 23, when he called to him, after, after he's, he's found out what's going on here from the, from the young lad, he called to himself two centurions, so that's two commanders of 100 men, and said to them, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour. So that's, that's 9 o'clock at night. They're going to try to slip them out of town at night. And then proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And listen to verse 24. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on to bring him safely to Felix the governor. So Paul doesn't even have to walk here. So he's got this massive contingency leading him out of Jerusalem. He's going to slip him out at night. And he gets to ride out on a horse. Normally these guys would have to walk. So Paul rides out on a horse. They get him out uh, uh, down uh, about 30 miles out, halfway out. And then the larger contingency goes back. He's got a few still soldiers with him. Uh, it's still a heavy guard for one guy. And they're going to rest there, and then they'll bring in the rest of the way. And Paul gets to ride all the way in, fully guarded. You know? So, again, the providence of God in bringing Paul out, just the kindness of God here. Now, Felix has is, is, is proven to be a little bit of a liar, but he's kind of given the facts to some degree. So we know about Paul. He's padded things for himself. Uh, but the plan moves forward. And again, following uh, uh, standard procedures uh, for the Sanhedrin, he's gonna, they're going to they're gonna get there and they're going to allow the Sanhedrin to bring their case. So they're going to be brought in and they're going to be allowed to speak. But they're going to speak before Felix. Now, there's going to be a really fruitless interview with the Sanhedrin because there's been fruitless interviews with the Sanhedrin thus far. This is trumped up charges, so we have to keep that in mind. It has nothing to do with Roman law. And so Felix is going to see this, and it's going to go on up the chain. Everyone's going to see this, but in God's providential care all the way through, Paul will be allowed to speak on his behalf. And as he does, we're going to see Paul as a prisoner here without accusation. Again, 
uh, very difficult circumstances, but God is using these difficult circumstances to bring him all the way through. He's wrongly accused. There's no real accusation against him. There's nothing against him as a Roman citizen. And the case moves up anyway. And as it moves up, it gets to Felix. And then Felix washes his hands of the case. And God brings the circumstances of Paul to move him forward. He'll continue to move him forward. So God does the same thing for us. He brings our circumstances about for our spiritual good. God is working out his will and our lives through circumstances for his glory and for our good. So Paul is brought before Felix. And he's going to hear the accusations from the Jews. He's really going to be tried before Felix. But in the meantime, where's he staying? He's staying in Herod's praetorium. You remember Herod? What happened to him? He kind of decided to have a party, right, to sort of celebrate his grandeur. And God struck him dead, right? Prior to that, he had built himself a governor's mansion. It's called the praetorium. He didn't get to spend a lot of time in there because uh, quickly after, that's when he decided to aggrandize himself and uh, give himself a day there, and God struck him dead. Meanwhile, all this time later, Paul is now to meet Felix, and he rides down on a mount out of Jerusalem, and then he gets to stay in Herod's mansion while he awaits his trial. So pretty interesting, right? Pretty cool little holding place for Paul. And again, all the prominence of God working in Paul's life. So <clears throat> Felix agrees. He's going to see the case. Now Paul is being held. And he's being held in a very luxurious place. And once in a while, that happens for us. God just gives us little perks, little Easy kind of moments of life. Now, you think Paul is ready. This is a little bit of just, we don't see it in the text, but as we see God's prophecy, we think about this. You think Paul could just use a little bit of TLC right now? I mean, he's been, he's been battered pillar to post. The guy's had a rough go of it. He is in the midst of hard times. And then we just see a little bit of God's kindness, right? seemingly right when Paul needs it. There's no, there's no uh, slipping him out, you know, uh, tying, putting him in a bucket and letting him down, you know, the, the, the castle wall and easing him out, out on his own. At night, he has this massive army to march him out. He rides out of Jerusalem and he'll ride uh, before the governor. And then he's laying over and he's staying in a mansion. So just when you need a little break here and there, God is just that kind to give a few little perks. And we see a few little perks here for Paul. So God is faithful. That is the point. He's faithful. Now, this is the first day after God made that promise to Paul, right? You're going to preach the gospel in Rome. Day one. After that promise, he moves him 60 miles closer to that reality. Day one. And he gets to ride out on a horse and he gets to stay in a palace. And he does so as a prisoner of Rome. Day one, he's 60 miles closer. 
God is caring for Paul. He's comforting Paul. Paul has some safety and some comfort. And Paul, I believe, needed that at this particular time. He had endured much up to this point. And so now he's getting a little TLC. He's getting a little rest. And we'll see that he didn't speak to kings. 20 years, 20 years earlier, the Lord had said to Paul that he would carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and before kings. He did that in Acts 9, 15. Now it's 20 years later, and we're seeing Paul on the cusp of that. That promise will now be fulfilled. Now it'll be fulfilled by Paul as a prisoner, not a free man. And Paul will testify before Governor Felix. We'll see this in chapter 24. And then he'll testify before Governor Festus in chapter 25. And then he'll testify before King Agrippa in chapter 25. Just like the Lord had promised him 20 years prior. The Lord is faithful. He keeps his promises. We are to trust him and obey him and leave the circumstances and consequences to God. Trust in his providential care. His purpose for you will be accomplished. So actively wait, actively wait in obedience and trust, knowing that he will see you through. His will for your life will be done according to his providential care in all situations and circumstances of your life. And we see a beautiful example of that here, of just the Bible taking and telling us of Paul's little journey out of Rome to see the governor. But in all those circumstances, God is bringing about his will in Paul's life. And the same is true for you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We ask that you would take it and you would minister to our hearts, that we would see the beauty of it. Uh, as we see just some circumstances of Paul's travel, we know it's far more than that. We see your providential hand in, in um, uncovering this plot and caring for Paul and delivering him to safety, for he is your man and you have made promises that he will carry the gospel for the Gentiles and kings. And we're about to see that take place, that you are a God who keeps your word. You are a promise-keeping God. You're a God of all circumstances. You're a God of providential care. Nothing is outside of the boundaries of your will and your purpose to bring about your glory in all of life situations. So as we come to you uh, as your people this morning, we ask that you would help us tune our hearts to that reality that all that is happening in our lives and around us in this particular time and this particular climate is for our spiritual good and for you to use us, to bring us along, to bring you honor and glory, for you are working out your will in our life and all the circumstances are flowing from your sovereign hand. We ask that you would help us to love and trust you and uh, to live in obedience to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.